0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is showing our love for the Lord. In the first half, John W. Welch shares his address, and with all thy mind. Then in the second half, Timothy B. Smith speaks on love of the Savior.
1: For almost 40 years, my wife and I have been blessed by the full life of the mind offered by Brigham Young University. First as students, where we met in the library, and now as we both serve on the faculty. We are grateful to all who have worked to make BYU so intellectually inspiring. I hope that some of my words today, in some small way, will repay the many to whom I am deeply indebted. And thanks to each of you for coming today and bringing the Holy Ghost with you. Brigham Young's instruction to the BYU faculty was that They should not teach even the multiplication tables without the Holy Ghost. I would state a corollary to that instruction. As students, you should not learn even the multiplication tables without the Holy Ghost. It does little good for someone to teach with the Holy Ghost if you aren't ready to receive with the Holy Ghost. Today, I would ask what does it mean to you to love God with all your mind? We feel what it means to love him with our heart, but what does it mean to love him with your mind? I've asked many people this question. I get many different answers. What would your answer be? At the outset, let me turn to a passage in Mark 12, which I find terribly important. A highly educated scribe, their equivalent of a college graduate, had overheard Jesus reasoning with some Sadducees. He asked the Savior, Which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And, Jesus added, This is the second, love thy neighbor as thyself. To which the scholar responded, Teacher, you speak very well and in truth. For to love God with all one's heart and all one's understanding and all one's strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more advantageous than all burnt offerings and sacrifice. Seeing that this person spoke with keen intelligence, Jesus declared, You are not far from the kingdom of God. This brief encounter is deeply interesting to me. Since Jesus was dealing here with a craftsman of words, let me mention some notable vocabulary in their conversation. When Jesus stated the Prime Commandment, he carefully included the mind. The Greek word used for mind is dianoia, meaning, with all your way of thinking or your perception of things. In his response, the scholar used an even more dynamic word, synesis, meaning understanding, getting things all together, comprehensive comprehension, synthesis, and insight. And then escalating to a third step, Jesus told this man that he was not far from the kingdom because he spoke nun echos, literally having nous, the highest term in some philosophical pantheons for true, even divine intelligence. These three words regard the mind highly, the last being especially strong. How many lessons can we draw from this inspiring exchange between the Savior? and this educated individual. Let us not pass lightly over this stunning scripture. Divine declarations often come without much elaboration, yet are laden with profound implications. I would speak today of seven dimensions of loving God with all our mind, drawing from words in this account. First, we learn with assurance that it is possible to get near to the kingdom of God while having intelligence. This smart man was close to the mark, and Jesus congratulated him for it. Likewise, we on the faculty congratulate and welcome you. At this university and in this religion, you don't need to check your brains at the door. To be a gospel scholar, you'll need all the brilliance you can muster. For we have the double challenge of knowing not only the ways of the world, but also the ways of the Lord, and then getting the two together. In this sense, the world actually has the lighter assignment. Of course, in another sense, our task is the easier, for because of modern scriptures in the temple, we have more pieces in life's puzzle, as well as the picture on the box. I hope you are excited and humbled to be at Brigham Young University, where we boldly affirm that intelligence is the glory of God, and that to be learned is good, so long as we avoid the vainness the frailties, and the foolishness of men, and also hearken unto the counsels of God. Ancient and modern prophets offer role models of highly intelligent people who have loved the Lord with all their mind. Until only recently, President Hinckley has enjoyed reading the classics in Latin and Greek, which he learned in college. Isaiah was a brilliant writer. Paul was amazingly articulate. Alma went head-to-head against the stubborn issues of his day. As Ammon promised the people of Limhi, if ye will turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart and put your trust in him and serve him with all diligence of mind, he will deliver you. Thus it is indeed possible to get near to the kingdom of God with intelligence. Second, Jesus makes it clear that we are commanded to love God with our mind. Pondering this, I realized that I should approach this commandment as a responsibility not just as an opportunity or privilege. I wondered, do you think of this commandment when you partake of the sacrament? Or when you answer the recommend question about striving to keep the Lord's commandments? Like keeping any commandment, keeping this one will surely take conscious effort. We don't keep the word of wisdom by accident. We don't keep the Sabbath day without planning and devotion. So what do you do to keep this commandment? Deliberately, do you earnestly strive to love God with all your mind? I doubt that a flimsy, well, I guess so, is going to be good enough. Jacob exhorted the pure in heart to look unto God with firmness of mind, and Alma made it clear that God will give people knowledge of his mysteries only according to the heed and diligence which they give unto him. There is a direct connection between answers obtained and our effort in keeping this commandment. I know that God will help us keep this commandment, for he will give no commandment save he shall prepare a way that we can keep it. Third, The word all is all-important here. It appears seven times in this scripture, itself a symbolic number of completion, often associated with sacrifice in Leviticus. Keeping this commandment requires genuine, dedicated completeness you are commanded to love god with all thy heart with all thy might and with all thy mind we have a word wholeheartedly maybe we should coin a word wholemindedly the gospel is not a cafeteria plan you can't just pick and choose the parts we like elder maxwell has spoken often about discipleship submissiveness and consecration especially in intellectual settings He has sensitized us of the dangers of what he calls holding back, of not loving God with all the mind that we could. As he has written in BYU Studies, whatever our particular fields, the real test is individual discipleship, not scholarship. We usually tend to think of consecration in terms of property, but there are also many ways of keeping back part and so many things that we can hold beside a portion of property. All things, including our minds, ought to be put on the altar. Minds must bend, as well as knees. An idea is often the last thing we are willing to let go of. Our pet ideas are often the beginning of our undoing. A wise drama teacher once said, Forget your best idea. Clinging to it will often block the flow of even greater creativity and more expansive inspiration. Fortunately, each of us has been blessed with definite mental talents and plenty to give forth. And remember, in the world of the New Testament, even one talent of gold or silver was an enormous sum worth several million dollars in today's markets. It is true that some minds work better in one mode than in another, but that is irrelevant. We can and must love God with our weakest mental abilities as well as by playing to our strengths. Surely God cares less about what we give him than if we have brought all of our best, whatever that may be. Fourth, this all has to do with love. Sister Welch and I have a pillow on our bed. On it are the words of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. With similar fervor, let us count the ways we love God with our minds, and love him to the depth and breadth and height my mind can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being and eternal grace to the level of every day's most quiet need, freely, purely, with passion put to use, and, if God choose, even better after death. We love him with our minds by being observant of the things he has created, by appreciating the amazing things that he has given us in the worlds of chemistry and geography and geology and scriptures and physiology or linguistics, If you love a person, you notice and admire the fantastic things he or she has done. President Hunter once said, He loves God with all his mind, who sees God in all things and acknowledges him in all ways. We love God with our minds by caring about the problems he cares about, by embracing his work, by giving it the best of our planning, research, thinking, and problem-solving. Figuring out what you can do as a home teacher to motivate someone to repent is truly an intellectual task. And learning the names of everyone in your ward is another important way to love God with your mind. When we love God, we want to be like him. And remember, he knows everyone's name. It takes mental effort to forgive other people as he does, for that begins by thinking non-judgmental thoughts about them and seeing them as he does. Loving God also means loving his words. I love the scriptures, although, admittedly, some chapters are harder to love than others. We love God with the mind by memorizing scriptures. The conversation between Jesus and the scribe was possible because both of them knew that scripture by heart. We rely too much on our books, notes, and hard drives. Your mind can actually retain far more than you ever imagine. One of the best things I ever did was to take a challenge from my leader in the MTC to memorize all of the Sermon on the Mount. In an Honors Book of Mormon class, I had my students memorize most of King Benjamin's speech. One student recalls, When we first got the assignment, it was overwhelming, but it was probably the most rewarding assignment I've ever had at BYU. We love God with the mind by skillful analysis of problems. It is often said that God is in the details. But don't forget to love God with skillful synthesis as well, seeing things as one great whole. When I go to the temple, I give attention to the tiniest details and carefully presented words. At the same time, my mind sees the temple as a huge pattern and cosmic roadmap that tells me where I am and where I need to go. We love God with the mind by asking good and righteous questions. There is nothing wrong with asking. In fact, we are commanded to ask, seek, and knock. Our scribe in Mark asked Jesus a good question—much better, in fact, than the unlikely hypothetical posed by the Sadducees about a supposed seven-time widow who had remarried six of her husband's brothers. We need to spend more time discerning between good questions and bad ones. It won't do to be knocking on the wrong door. For examples of good questions, look at the fifty questions Alma asks in Alma chapter 5 or the many questions Jesus asked people in the New Testament Gospels, and then go and do likewise. We love God by listening to him and to those who speak for him. A good measure of people who love each other is how well they listen to each other, and listening is a mental process. It involves attentively processing what we hear. Notice that the scribe repeated back, a good communication strategy, what Jesus had said, and then thoughtfully commented on its implication. How do we love God? Let us count the many ways. It is here at BYU more than any other place that you can specialize in learning how to love God with all your mind as an integrated soul. It is here that we see no irreconcilable conflict between the heart and the mind. The restored gospel of Jesus Christ exquisitely harmonizes the traditional paradoxes of life, embracing both study and faith, reason and revelation, truth and goodness, thought and action, spirit and mind. The one is not without the other in the Lord. The gospel strives above all for the fullness of eternal life, not just either half of it. An incomplete view is partial in more ways than one. Getting the heart and mind together is a joyous experience. It is not easy to describe the collaborative workings of the two, but analogies can help. Getting the spirit and intellect together is is like seeing with two eyes, allowing depth perception lacking through a single lens. It is like playing a violin, which requires two hands, each performing its own function to produce a harmonious melody. Or, as one student has suggested, it is like chocolate milk. They taste fine alone, but better together. Fifth, I learned from the conversation in Mark that Jesus cares very much about our minds. He carefully noticed that the scribe answered with great intelligence. This means that he notices and cares what we think, write, and teach. I know that God watches over our intellectual endeavors—the surgical testimony of Elder Nelson shows that God will help things happen that far exceed human ability. Have miracles ceased? No. Mormon says, in fact, that miracles are ministered unto them of strong faith and a firm mind in every form of godliness. I have asked for and received his support in many academic pursuits, often through the unimaginable help of other people. One day, with no appointment, a person walked into my office with the precise skill set I had been praying for, only to tell me that she didn't know why she had come, but that she decided not to stay with another job and wondered if I needed any help. Last Christmas, facing a crucial year-end deadline after months of work, my staff finally downloaded a huge collection of scanned church historical documents onto 74 DVD production masters. With those master discs safely in hand, they watched as our linked hard drives crashed irrecoverably only a few hours later i cannot believe that these things were mere coincidences i know that god will support us as we strive to love him with our minds my colleagues and i have attended and presented papers at many academic conferences and not unfrequently have been trans the results have been transformational in ways that we gladly attribute to the lord i know that god inspires us But most often only after we have studied it out in our minds and have paid the price of thorough research directed by the light of faith. Many LDS scholars and regular members as well can tell of sacred experiences they have had in discovering things through study and faith that they never would have found on their own. I myself treasure several such discoveries. I remember searching for an answer to a recurring criticism of the Book of Mormon about the Savior's use of the Sermon on the Mount in 3 Nephi. As I dug into the task, confident that there must be an answer, the apparent problem turned into a strength as the temple and covenant settings of both texts distilled upon me as the dews from heaven. I also remember one early missionary morning in Germany when the significant literary feature of Chiasmus in the Book of Mormon amazingly unfolded to my view. Outside study and spiritual promptings had set the stage, but a mind firmly and tenaciously pursuing the implications of my testimony of the Book of Mormon caused that discovery actually to happen. My testimony does not depend on finding such things. Rather, my mind looks with confidence for such things precisely because I know the Book of Mormon and the gospel are true. Faith precedes the miracle of understanding— As President Packer has cautioned and encouraged, we should not say, I know the gospel is true, however, rather say, I know the gospel is true, therefore. And that, for me, has made all the difference. I also know that God rewards us after long hours of service. Some of my favorite scriptural insights, making intellectual sense and dissolving spiritual challenges throughout my life, have come at weary hours of the night during my service as a bishop. Ironically, my most productive years have been when I have been busiest with Church callings. 6. What of the fact that this is part of the First Commandment? Loving God is the prime commandment because all else follows from it. Loving God is the wellspring of all righteousness. Loving him with all our mind is the taproot of true intelligence. Loving him with the integrated faculties of our whole being echoes the integrated harmony of the Godhead and of Godhood itself. John 14.15 can also be translated, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love God with all your mind, you will mind him and mind all his precepts. And by minding him always, by obeying him always, you remember him always. In fact, in Hebrew, the one word zakor means to remember as well as to obey. If you love God, then you will think of him often. You will want to share with him your whole day, every day and every night, Fridays as well as Sundays, everything you have thought, said and done. You will miss him and hope to see him again. You will think kind and loving things about him. In the face of any type of inconclusive uncertainty, love gives the benefit of the doubt. You will also think correct things about him. While you cannot talk yourself into loving God or anyone else, it is possible to talk yourself out of love, so give heed to what you think. Loving God leads leads to all else that is of the divine nature. Finally, we must also acknowledge that it is possible to disobey this commandment. How do we break this commandment, to love God with all thy mind, and if we have, what must we do? We break this commandment when we think contrary to the degree of knowledge we have received, when we know better. We break this commandment when we promote ideas that injure other people. For with knowledge comes power, and with any power Comes duty and accountability. We break this commandment when we harbor in our mind errors or excuses that deny the existence, love, power, or knowledge of God. As a bishop, I've heard people say, Everyone's doing it. I couldn't stop. It's my life. I can do what I want with it. Every point of view is equally valid. I have no friends. No one will notice. But where do these mental mistakes leave God? Is God doing it? Couldn't God help you stop? Is it really your life? Does God's view count? Isn't he your friend? Doesn't God know and notice everything, including your thoughts? We break this commandment whenever we believe Satan, the enemy of all righteousness. Beware, Satan is the father of all lies. And he's a good liar. Take the lie of pornography. Satan tells us that we find satisfaction by staring at pornography. This is simply a lie. Can we love God with all our mind, if even part of our mind is filled with this pollution? When I came to BYU in the 60s, we were just beginning to worry about environmental pollution. Previous generations had foolishly believed that the oceans could absorb an endless amount of garbage and waste we learn that pollution doesn't just go away. I wonder if people aren't just as naive today. They foolishly think that the human mind can absorb an endless amount of filth and violence and that somehow we can just push a delete key in our brain and erase all of that. You have been blessed with an amazing brain with incredible retentive powers. Whether or not you can recall that information during a test, it's all still there, I assure you. Old folks often find that their brains retain things they haven't thought about for decades. Mental pollution sticks. There are no Teflon brains. Just as it is true that whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. So, too, whatever degree of unrepented smut or cynicism we attain unto, it will rise with us as well. Thus Moroni says, Come unto Christ, and be perfected in him, and deny yourself of all ungodliness, and love God with all your might, mind, and strength. Moroni says, Be perfected in him. We cannot perfect our minds without his help. We know the effects of the fall on our bodies, but our minds are also in a fallen state. Our minds must also be redeemed. This happens by repenting of our bad or erroneous thoughts and submitting to the mind and will of Christ. We must repent of our academic pride. Pride is the main occupational hazard for scholars who too quickly suppose they know of themselves. Being right is part, but only part, of being righteous. We must overcome our rebellious thoughts every bit as much as our disobedient actions. We must pray and lead us not into intellectual temptation as much as any other kind of temptation. Satan knows a lot of truth, but that's not enough, for he still rebels. We must feel godly sorrow for our mental sins. Like Zeezrom, we must suffer spiritual migraines over our intellectual mistakes. In many ways, their effects on ourselves and on others are the hardest to undo. But through the Atonement, the human intellect can be transformed into an instrument for loving God. So the question becomes, has your mind been sanctified by the atoning blood of Christ? Has your mind yielded to the enticings of the Holy Spirit? Do you have no more disposition to think evil? Has the finger of God touched our inert cerebral stones and turned them into light-giving gems? Or, to use the words of Paul, have you been transformed by the renewing of your mind, your noose? If so— The Lord will light up your mind, as he did King Lamoni's. He will cause your mind to expand, as Alma promised. He will write his covenants upon your mind, as Jeremiah guaranteed. He will bless your heart and mind with peace that passes all understanding, as Paul assured. And in the end, if you love God with all your mind, you will be fit for the kingdom. What a promise! At BYU we are playing for keeps. For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And in the day of judgment even our unrepented thoughts will weigh against us. But I testify, as the scriptures say, If you worship him with all your mind, ye shall in no wise be cast out, and the hope of his glory and of eternal life shall rest in your mind forever. In conclusion, as a bishop and teacher, may I offer a prayer in your behalf. May you not just pass through BYU, but may the spirit of this university pass through you. May you know that it is possible to love God with all your mind. May you love Him with invigorating questions. May you perceptively discern between truth and error. May your intellect be keen and sharp, but never harm even the least intelligent of the children of God. In your academic freedom, May you intellectually choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men, not captivity and death. May you pray over your books as you would bless food for thought. May you pray as you go to class and not just as you enter the testing center. May your love of God give harmony and value and joy to all that you think and do that you may become perfected in Christ. And in all of this, may God find you too not far from his kingdom. I so pray and testify in the true and loving name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Showing Our Love for the Lord. We've just heard from John W. Welch. After the break, we'll return with Timothy B. Smith for Love of the Savior. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Showing Our Love for the Lord. Next is Timothy B. Smith, BYU Associate Professor of Counseling Psychology at the time of this address, titled Love of the Savior.
2: Over the past two weeks, we have seen an outpouring of love on the Brigham Young University campus. When we learned of the death of President Gordon B. Hinckley, students set up spontaneous memorials expressing their love for him. And when the reorganization of the First Presidency was announced last week, our hearts reached out in love to President Thomas S. Monson and his counselors. Love is a central principle in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Often asked why people who joined the Church remain loyal to him, the Prophet Joseph Smith explained. It is because I possess the principle of love. All I can offer is a good heart and a good hand. A young man who knew the Prophet Joseph Smith later recalled an occasion when Joseph and some of the young men were playing various outdoor games, among which was a game of ball. By and by they began to get weary. He saw it and called them together and said, Let's build a log cabin. So they set off and built a log cabin for a widow-woman." On another occasion, after playing ball with the boys, the prophet gathered up the players and then sent them out to chop and deliver wood to the needy. This kind of love for others is a gift from God called charity. It is the love of the Savior. In the Worldwide Leadership Training broadcast this past Saturday, Elder Holland shared what he called the parable of the homemade shirt. When he was young, his mother would sometimes sew shirts for him, and she did her best work when she followed a pattern. Without a pattern, the shirt might end up with errors. Elder Holland then drew the parallel that the gospel of Jesus Christ provides essential patterns for our lives. Deviation from the gospel pattern is likely to result in error. For example, romantic love is wonderful, but our society distorts romance beyond proportion. It is as if a clean white shirt has been tie-dyed and tailored to the point of immodesty. It ends up fitting no one. No wonder so many end up disappointed. When it comes to love, we can take our measurements from a higher standard. The perfect pattern of love was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. Love one another as I have loved you. There are countless patterns in the Holy Scriptures that can teach us about the love of the Savior, but today we will focus on only one. That pattern is that, first, God loves us. We then turn to him for healing and instruction. He then turns our hearts to love and serve others. Not specific to romantic love, this pattern applies to a variety of circumstances, from missionary service to marriage. Let's turn to the scriptures for three examples of this pattern. Enos, Lehi, and the sons of Mosiah. First, consider the story of the prophet Enos. He said, I went to hunt beasts in the forest, and the words which I had often heard my father speak concerning eternal life and the joy of the saints sunk deep into my heart. First, Enos opened his heart to God. Next, Enos turned to God and was healed. He said, And my soul hungered. And I kneeled down before my Maker, and I cried unto him in mighty prayer and supplication for my own soul. And all the day long did I cry unto him, Yea, and when the night came, I did still raise my voice high that it reached the heavens. And there came a voice unto me, saying, Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee, and thou shalt be blessed. Enos prayed for his own soul and received a remission of his sins. As soon as he was healed, Enos turned his thoughts to others. He said, When I had heard these words, I began to feel a desire for the welfare of my brethren, the Nephites. Wherefore I did pour out my whole soul unto God for them. And I prayed unto him with many long strugglings for my brethren, the Lamanites. First, Enos opened his heart to God. Then he turned to God and received healing forgiveness. When he was healed, he turned to serve others. A second example of the pattern is found in the vision of the tree of life by the prophet Lehi. In his words, I beheld myself that I was in a dark and dreary waste. And after I had traveled for the space of many hours in darkness, I began to pray unto the Lord that he would have mercy on me. First, Lehi was alone until he remembered the Lord. Next, Lehi turned to God and received of his love, represented by the tree of life. He said, After I had prayed unto the Lord, I beheld a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. And It came to pass that I did go forth and partake of the fruit thereof. Lehi came to the tree of life and was filled with joy. This prompted him to remember his family. He said, Wherefore, I began to be desirous that my family should partake of it also, and it came to pass that I beckoned unto them, and I did say with a loud voice that they should come unto me and partake of the fruit. Lehi and his family were in darkness. They were brought to the tree of life, which represented the love of God. Those who partook of the fruit were filled with joy and consecrated their lives unto the Lord. A third example of this pattern is found in the mission of the four sons of Mosiah who left their homes to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ among their enemies, the Lamanites. Through this mission, many Lamanites received of the Lord's love, turned to him and were healed, then consecrated themselves to lives of service and peace. Whether individual, as in the case of Enos, family, as in the case of Lehi, or a whole group of people, as in the case of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. The pattern is the same. In a way, this pattern follows Elder Oaks's pattern of good, better, best. It is good to believe that the Savior, Jesus Christ, loves us. It is better to turn to him and be healed. It is best to love as he loves giving ourselves completely to others. In the scriptures, the term heart sometimes refers to love, but the term hand is also used. Whereas heart refers to a feeling, hand refers to an act of giving, putting into action our feelings of love. In that sense, the image of an outreached hand symbolizes a type of love spoken of in the scriptures. The Lord reaches out to us in love, then heals us, then sets us apart in his service. For example, after the resurrection, the Apostle John records that when the Savior appeared to the apostles, he showed unto them his hands. He then set them apart, saying, As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. The same pattern occurred when the Savior appeared to the Nephites. First he showed unto them his hands. Then he healed them. Then he ordained disciples to minister unto them. We face many challenges in life. You have experienced challenges and suffering and struggles known only to you and to God, says the Lord, as the clay is in the potter's hand so are ye in my hand. For you it might be the darkest of night, but the arm of his mercy is extended in the light of day. No matter what your struggle, you can feel of his love right now. No matter what your heartache, you can seek his love right now. He healeth the broken in heart, and when we are healed we can say, But thou, O Lord, art our Father, and we the clay, and thou our potter, and we are all the work of thy hand. When we receive God's love, we become willing to submit to his will. It is immediately after we say, Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit, that we are taken from the pain of this world, transformed by him in a mighty change of heart. In heartache, I have cried out for him, and I have felt the love of the Savior. I know of his grace. He is love. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Through the atonement, we are healed. And when we are healed, he turns our hearts to others. That is how he works. It is his work and his glory. When we submit our will to his, we receive the greatest gift of all. We do struggle in this life. But the pattern of our Savior's love accounts for our limitations and growth over time. He works with us according to our abilities and needs, which change in every stage of life. As children, we need to receive. We need love. As we grow older, we gain a personal witness of God. We need forgiveness as we hurt ourselves and others. As adults, we shoulder responsibilities in family and community. The pattern reflects our progression. When we are healed, we give. Our Father in Heaven invites all of us, His children. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Freely have ye received, freely give. Said the psalmist, because thy loving kindness is better than life, I will lift up my hands in thy name. Our hands become his when we labor in his name. You can lift up your hands to serve. You have gifts to give. What are they? Like President Thomas S. Monson, you might follow the Savior's pattern of love by visiting the sick and the afflicted, the fatherless, and the widows, but whatever your inclinations might be. The BYU Center for Service and Learning offers dozens of service-learning opportunities, at least one of which will be suited for your needs. I hope we overwhelm them with requests. Chances are you already know someone in your family who needs of your love, or know someone who needs the truths of the gospel, Both missionary service and marriage qualify as service-learning opportunities. Because marriage and missionary service might be on the minds of at least one person here today, they deserve further attention. First, missionary service. A member of our ward, Sister Sharon Paulson, joined the Church 13 years ago, and the gospel transformed her life. She sought all she could do to further missionary work, so for ten years she has served as a cook in the missionary training center. Chances are many of you have been blessed by her service. Although her offering may have begun as the equivalent of five loaves and two fishes, her hands have become his in feeding thousands. Like the four sons of Mosiah, once we have been healed by the Savior, our desire is for others to receive his same love. When the love of the Savior is our motive, we become missionaries, full-time or not. Said Elder M. Russell Ballard, Some members say, I'm afraid to share the gospel because I might offend someone. Experience has shown that people are not offended, when the sharing of the gospel is motivated by love and concern. How could anyone be offended when we say something like this, I love the way the Church helps me, and then add whatever the Spirit directs? It is when we appear only to be fulfilling an assignment and we fail to express real interest and love that we offend others. Our niece, currently serving in the Raleigh, North Carolina Mission, I've shared with us recently that she has made it her goal to see everyone she meets as her literal brother or sister. Such love is motivated by the love of the Savior. She says that perspective has made all the difference. Missionary service requires genuine love. We may be called to serve, but we cannot serve truly. Without that qualification, with that qualification, charity and love qualify us for the service of our Heavenly Father. Having that qualification, missionaries fulfill the Lord's request, quote, Let them lift up their voice and declare my word, lifting up holy hands upon them, for I am able to make you holy. Missionaries follow the pattern of the Lord. They help others, first to receive His love, then turn to Him and be healed, and then commit the remainder of their lives to His service. For the person still thinking about marriage, it's now your turn to listen. The thirteenth article of faith proclaims, If there is anything virtuous or lovely or of good report or praiseworthy— We seek after these things. We seek after marriage. But what kind of marriage? We often hear people speak of eternal marriage or temple marriage. But what kind of marriage is that? Said Elder Marlon K. Jensen, Eternal marriage is godlike marriage. The term eternal describes the quality of marriage as much as its duration. What type of marriage would our God have if we had that perspective in mind when we speak of temple marriage? Then we would worry less about decorations and focus more on the core values, such as those concluding the Young Women's theme, being prepared to strengthen home and family, make and keep sacred covenants, receive the ordinances of the temple and enjoy the blessings of exaltation. Let me tell you about a young couple who lived that way. Amy met her sweetheart, Curtis, in the Clyde Building, where they were attending engineering classes together. Curtis was a returned missionary serving in his elders quorum. He loved the Savior, and Amy knew it because of how he served others and how he lived his life. They were sealed in the Mount Timpanogos Temple, and Curtis continued to serve Amy and then later their little daughter in countless little ways. Family came first, balanced with responsibilities as student counselor in a BYU freshman ward, Bishop Brick, and member of the BYU Ultimate Frisbee Team. As he was driving to Canada with the BYU team, there was an accident, and Curtis was killed. Amy and Curtis's marriage is eternal. But it is not eternal because he has died. It is eternal because of how he lived—serving others and honoring his temple covenants. Regarding his marriage, President Gordon B. Hinckley said, In our long life together, I cannot remember a serious quarrel. If every husband and every wife would constantly do whatever might be possible to ensure the comfort and happiness of his or her companion, there would be little, if any, divorce. Another example of such dedication in marriage comes from a woman I know who was an English major at BYU. She met her sweetheart in Provo, corresponded with him throughout his mission to Germany, and then later throughout her own mission, also to Germany, three-and-a-half years writing letters. They were sealed in the Provo temple a few months before their graduation from BYU. Even though they were going to be attending graduate school, they desired to have children immediately, but they were unable to do so. The wife later lamented, My poor husband, for six years, he thought marriage meant hearing me cry every night. Eventually, they were able to adopt a baby boy. And later, a baby girl, and a baby boy, and another baby girl. After so many years of heartache, they were constantly caring for children. But that was not the end. After undergoing additional treatments, they learned they were going to have triplets. Months of bed rest to prevent premature delivery were followed by months of constant devotion to the needs of the tiny infants. The couple now had seven children, eight years old and younger. (laughs) Through years of heartache, this sister had actively sought the love of the Lord. Eventually, she was healed and dedicated her life to serving her family. That dedication did not begin when she first held a child in her arms. It began as BYU students—she and her future husband—determined their life's priorities and then went forward, no matter the cost. Anciently, devotion to God was demonstrated through daily sacrifices performed in the temple upon a holy altar, today eternal devotion in marriage begins within the temple, across a holy altar, and sacrifices are still a daily requirement. Marriage is ordained of God. It is a pattern perfectly designed for us to increase in our capacity to love because marriage requires sacrifice. President Howard W. Hunter has said we need to love one another with the pure love of Christ and, if necessary, shared suffering, for that is the way God loves us. There is joy in marriage, joy in missionary service, and joy whenever we reach out with the hand of the Lord to serve others. The pattern of love presented today is but one of many found in the Holy Scriptures, and like most patterns, it points us to Christ. As we receive God's love, our faith motivates us to repent. The Atonement of Jesus Christ makes healing possible. And when we are born again, born of the water and of the Spirit, Through baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost prompts us to give to others, consecrating our talents and time for their benefit. Priesthood, the perfect plan of service, and temple covenants enable eventual sanctification. Christ is at the center of the pattern. He is at the beginning and at the end. He is the pattern of love that we follow. Whether missionary, single, or married, we can apply his pattern to our lives through active planning. Think about your schedule this week. When will you make time to serve others? Many people can be blessed by your service. Who can you help? So what if you receive no valentines? How many will you give? like the prophet joseph smith when we possess the principle of love what we offer is a good heart and a good hand to my way of thinking brigham young university embodies the pattern of christ's love members of the church who love the savior give their tithes at some sacrifice so that our lives will be blessed through their giving and through the direction of Christ's servants who administer this institution, we are enabled to serve for a lifetime. This university exists through giving and love. Said Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, We love you and measure that love as we measure the greatness of this school by the profundity and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, faculty and staff, love you, students. We seek to turn you to Christ so that you will give of yourselves to others across your lifetimes. What we all entered BYU to learn is to go forth to serve. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Showing Our Love for the Lord with thoughts from John W. Welch and Timothy B. Smith. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org findingcenter.